Bola Digital Media, iTunes Podcast, Smartphone Apps, and from the online website. This is Outlook, the talking newspaper for Coventry. Hello and welcome to Outlook. I'm Stella Roberts and this edition is being recorded on Wednesday the 28th of February 2024. Coming up we have a piece from Elaine about events linked to the month of February. Nigel tells us about the famous tapestry at Bayer in France. And much nearer to home, Keith is looking at the decline of shopping in Earlston High Street. Bill is remembering comedian Barry Humphreys, who died last year. And Margaret brings us more from Dictionary Corner. We reach the last chapter of Hurdy Gurdy Days, read by Alan. And Dave has been visiting the Blitz Museum in the Cathedral Ruins. We also have our usual features, news from the Source Centre and Postbag. But first, here is this week's news, and it's read by Elaine and myself. Outlook News. The Verbs Richard Ashcroft, along with singers Paloma Faith, Beverly Knight and Sam Ryder, are just a few of the big names that will be taking to the stage this year for the hugely anticipated Cadiva Festival to be held at the War Memorial Park from Friday, July 5th to Sunday, July 7th. It marks 25 years since the start of the Cadiva Festival and often draws in huge crowds from all over the UK. Coventry City Council will be celebrating the milestone with a star-studded lineup, and said there will be something for everyone. Tickets for the much-loved event will go on sale on Friday, March the 1st. Headlining on Friday, July the 5th will be Richard Ashcroft, a hugely successful solo artist who has three top three albums. His latest album features acoustic versions of classic songs from his back catalogue, spanning both his solo career and his time with The Verb. Supporting Richard Ashcroft will be Coventry indie rock band The Primitives, who played at the Godiva Festival back in 2010. DJ Holy Goof will be hitting the next stage on the same evening and will be supported by Coventrian Georgie Rias and Toddler, both of whom played at Godiva in 2022. Singer Paloma Faith will be headlining the popular city-based event on Saturday. She will be performing songs from her new album, The Glorification of Sadness, which was released earlier this month, as well as her massive chart hits. Paloma will be supported by Sam Ryder, who represented the UK in the Eurovision Song Contest with Spaceman in 2022. Headlining on Sunday will be acclaimed singer, songwriter and actress Beverly Knight. She is well known for chart-topping hits such as Keep This Fire Burning. Taking to the next stage on Sunday is a mix of city-based bands and DJs, including Sisters in Dub and Ruder Than You. The Body Snatchers Rhoda Dakar will also be hitting the stage on Sunday. Organisers say the family field will be home to the serendipity stage where youngsters can enjoy Dr. Ranj Teddy Bear Hospital as well as SK Slowmos Beatbox Adventure for Kids. A city building has been shortlisted for the West Midlands Building of the Year Award. It has been described as an inspiring and environmentally sustainable building. 
Officials at the Royal Institute of British Architects have shortlisted the Interdisciplinary Biomedical Research Building at the University of Warwick. It was said to have helped create a dynamic teaching and learning environment. Bosses at the University of Warwick said the impressive 54.3 million building demonstrates its continued commitment to addressing the climate emergency. It will also be home to a large-scale art installation by Rana Begum. Thomas Elmer, Exhibitions Curator at the Warwick Arts Centre, said, We are thrilled to see the building shortlisted for the West Midlands 2024 Reba Award. Begum is an artist working at the leading edge of art and architecture, Therefore, it feels only right that we locate this beautiful sculpture within a new building dedicated to delivering world-leading research. Professor Gavin Perkins, Dean of Warwick Medical School, said, We are delighted with the recognition of our new home in IBRB in the Reba Regional Shortlisting. It is a great research hub and brings staff and students together in one collaborative space. There are growing worries that Chancellor Jeremy Hunt might announce major changes to the state pension age in his spring budget. The state pension age is already set to rise from 66 to 67 and then 68, but a recent report suggests it could soon go up to 70 or more. Chris Rudden of investment advice group Money Farm said, there could be changes to the state pension, and in particular, an increase in the state pension age. He added, this could be significant as the state pension forms a substantial portion of many people's retirement income. It also pay, plays a crucial role in bolstering individuals' confidence in their ability to retire. Mr. Rudden warned that if people think they won't get their state pension until they're in their 70s, it could make them distrust the system even more. He also mentioned that experts have been saying for years that the state pension system is deeply flawed and there are fears it could soon be scrapped altogether. He said the policy is fast becoming a huge cost for government coffers, adding that research indicates that the projected cost of the state pension will soon exceed the combined budgets for defence education and the Home Office. The current model tied to the triple lock is likely to increase year on year. Accountant Chris Demetrio from Arch Archimedia Accounts also said the Chancellor could set out changes to the state pension in the budget on March the 6th. Abrupt changes risk harming manual workers who lack flexible roles. Gradually raising the age while accounting for career length offers a fairer solution. The cost of the state pension will jump up from April when payments increase 8.5%. This means the full basic state pension is going up from £156.20p a week to £169.50 a week while the full new state pension is increasing from £203.85 a week to £221.20 a week. Energy bills are to decrease by £293 a year under the new Ofgem price cap. 
This means that the average UK household could save around that sum annually. From April the 1st, energy bills will reach their lowest level in over two years, providing some much-needed relief for families amidst the cost-of-living crisis. The average family will pay £1,635 from April, a 15% drop from the current average cost of £1,928 per year. The regulator announced it's dropping its price cap by 12.3% from the current £1,928 for a typical dual-fuel household in England, Scotland and Wales to £1,690, a drop of £238 over the course of a year or around £20 a month. Ofgem Chief Executive Jonathan Brearley said, This is good news to see the price cap drop to its lowest level in more than two years and to see energy bills for the average household drop by £690 since the peak of the crisis. But there are still big issues that we must tackle head on to ensure we build a system that's more resilient for the long term and fairer to customers. We also need to address the risk posed by stubbornly high levels of debt in the system, so we must introduce a temporary payment to help prevent an unsustainable situation leading to higher bills in future. But longer term, we need to think about what more can be done for those who simply cannot afford to pay their energy bills, even as prices fall. As we return to something closer to normality, We have an opportunity to reset and reframe the energy market to make sure it's ready to protect customers if prices rise again. Plans to build almost 300 homes on former Greenbelt land in Coventry are set to get the rubber stamp this week as the final piece of planning permission is expected to be granted. A reserve matters application for 290 homes on land between Bennett's Road and Fivefield Road in Kersley was submitted in September. Tomorrow, Thursday 29th of February, it's expected to get the green light at a meeting of the planning committee. Papers are set to go before the committee state that the site was previously designated Greenbelt land but it was reallocated for housing following an independent examination by an inspector. Councillors will be told that the proposal is consistent with an allocation in the development plan and is acceptable in principle, and that it will not adversely impact on highway safety, air quality, drainage, flooding, ancient woodland or ecology. Of the 290 new homes, 9 will be one-bedroom properties, 90 will be two-bedroom, 119 three-bedroom and 72 four-bedroom. A total of 73 homes will be allocated as affordable housing. The plans haven't been without controversy. A total of 51 objections were submitted from local residents and businesses when the outline application was first lodged last year. A further eight letters of objection have been sent to the Council since the Reserve Matters application was lodged, raising concerns ranging from the impact on biodiversity, the design of the houses, location of bus stops, 
impacts on rights of way, lack of infrastructure and congestion. As part of the proposals, funding has been secured for sporting provision in the Coventry Northwest area, including for swimming pools, a sports hall and artificial grass pitch. Vaccination rates for children in Coventry are tracking at below the national average as a measles outbreak gathers pace. Papers set to go before a council meeting next week show that at one GP practice, just 71% of children have had the double dose of measles vaccine by age 5, well below the national average of 84.5%. The average across the city is at 81.7%. And the number of confirmed cases of measles is growing. Since October the 1st, there have been 26 cases in Coventry, In neighbouring Birmingham, there have been 300 confirmed cases over the same period of time, but in Warwickshire, there's been just three cases. The papers state, measles is a preventable viral infection, which is highly contagious, and on rare occasions can cause serious complications, such as blindness, pneumonia and meningitis, and it can be fatal. Young babies, people who are immune suppressed and pregnant women are at higher risk of complications. The MMR vaccine is the best way of protecting individuals, preventing outbreaks and protecting the most vulnerable individuals in a community. The MMR vaccine is offered to children at one year and again as a booster at three years and four months. Uptake has declined over the years nationally and locally. The papers set out what is being done to combat the low take-up of the vaccine in Coventry. This includes school-based MMR pop-ups and an effort to educate the public through posters to raise knowledge and awareness. Calls for Coventry to twin with the city in Gaza as war ranges in the Middle East have gone before the council. A petition asking for the council formally to link the city with Khan Yunus was presented to councillors this week. The appeal, signed by more than 400 people, referred to the brutal bombardment of Coventry in the Second World War and said the situation is being mirrored in the Gazan city. We believe it is only fitting due to our exceptional history that we twin Coventry City with Khan Yunus and extend the hope for both peace and reconciliation, it added. Labour councillor Shaquille Nazir, who represents Foles Hill, sponsored the petition which was set up by a local resident. Addressing councillors last week, she spoke of the city's historic twin links, including with Stalingrad, now Volgograd, though this was suspended in 2022 after Russia invaded Ukraine, and the German city of Kiel, just two years after the end of the Second World War. These links began and cemented the city's legacy as a city of peace and reconciliation, she said. Khan Yunis is roughly the same size as Coventry and has around 370,000 people. According to the BBC, the city now holds more than a million people. Resources are scarce and it has been relentlessly bombed. 
The e-petition raised on Coventry City Council's website was shared by the Coventry City of Peace and Reconciliation website. Khan Yunus is already twinned with five European cities. Over a million UK workers could have unfair contracts ripped up and improved if union bosses get their way. Workers on zero-hour contracts are stuck with low pay and insecurity, says the TUC. They claim employers are parking workers on zero-hour contracts for years on end. Two out of three zero-hour workers have been with their current employer for over a year, and one in eight has been there for over ten years. TUC General Secretary Paul Newark said, Everyone should be treated fairly at work, but too many workers, especially black and ethnic minority women, are trapped in low-paid jobs on zero-hours contract, with few rights and protections and no guarantee of shifts. The latest figures show that there are 1.15 million people on these contracts. Mr Noah continued, These uncertain contracts give almost total control over workers' hours and earning power to managers, making it nearly impossible to plan budgets and childcare. Insecure work has boomed under the Conservatives over the past 14 years, with the number of workers on zero-hours contracts hitting the one million mark. That's why a ban on zero-hours contracts is long overdue. Working people should have a right to a contract that reflects their regular hours of work. He added, and it would be good for our economy too. Decent, secure jobs are essential to building a motivated, healthy, innovative workforce, all vital for high productivity growth. A massive cannabis farm boasting more than 1,400 plants with a street value well in excess of 1 million was shut down by police. In arresting those involved at Baton Road Industrial Estate in Exhall, police inadvertently uncovered a second cannabis farm in Coventry, albeit on a far smaller scale. Officers from the Nuneaton and Bedworth Safer Neighbourhood team visited a unit on the industrial estate two hours after National Grid tipped them off about unusually high electricity usage. They discovered a massive drug production operation with an intricate ducting and venting system and filters and scrubbers installed throughout the building. Over 1,000 six-week-old cannabis plants were discovered with an estimated street value when cropped of nearly £890,000. Evidence of another 407 harvested plants was also found. An officer outside the unit went in to investigate when he heard loud banging on a rear fire exit door. Two men burst through the door and made a run for it. After a short struggle, 31-year-old Haxheimer Lodge of no fixed abode was detained and arrested. The second male jumped over a high metal security fence into the neighbouring compound, losing his shoes and ripping his trousers in the process but he was soon brought into custody when a man with no shoes and ripped trousers was seen by police getting into a white BMW near the industrial estate. Donald Ponnery, of 22, of no fixed abode, was also arrested on suspicion of cannabis production. 
the BMW was later found in Exhall. The driver, also sporting ripped trousers, was arrested and identified as 28-year-old Adrian Liller of Priory Place in Coventry City Centre. The car was registered to an address on Cherry Close in Holbrooks, prompting a search of the property, which was kitted out with security cameras and blacked-out windows. As officers entered the back garden, a man attempted to flee by the back door before running back inside. He was arrested and identified as 26-year-old Nimmut Hoxhatch, whose home in Cherry Close had also been converted into a cannabis grow, with 25 plants upstairs and a further 26 downstairs. The four men were all sentenced to Warwick Crown Court for being concerned in the production of cannabis. Detective Constable Blaney from Warwickshire Police said, The production of cannabis at Baton Road was at an industrial scale, with a highly sophisticated setup. There were very clear ties to funding from organised criminal gangs, and elements of modern slavery are apparent throughout the day-to-day operation of both grows. This is the real price of cannabis. It costs a bit of money for the bag with a surcharge of misery for those affected by the gangs behind it. There have been 10 confirmed cases of Alabama rot in the UK in 2024 so far, it has been revealed. The dog disease can cause ulcers, kidney failure and can even be fatal if not treated. Dogs affected by Alabama rot often develop ulcers or sores, typically on the bottom part of the leg, and generally go on to develop kidney failure, which is often fatal. But what causes Alabama rot? Dog experts at Kennel Store have released details on causes, what the signs and symptoms are, and the dangers if dogs are affected. A spokesman said, Alabama rot, also known as CRGV, is a very rare but potentially life-threatening disease that blocks and damages the blood vessels in a dog's skin and kidneys. The exact cause of Alabama rot is unknown, although research is ongoing. Most reports come from dog owners who walk their dogs in the countryside, and most cases are reported during winter and spring. Cases are generally less common in the summer months compared to the winter months. The first case was reported in America in the 1980s and at first it was thought to only affect greyhounds. It's now understood to affect all breeds, ages and sizes of dog. But what are the symptoms of Alabama rot? The spokesman said, Skin ulcers that can appear on the legs or paws, these marks may appear as an area of redness but could also present as a bruise, sting or an open sore. Ulcers may also develop on the muzzle, tongue, head, flank and belly. Changes such as reduced appetite, excessive drinking, vomiting and lethargy are signs of acute kidney injury. How can you protect your dog? They say to wash all mud off following wet and muddy walks, especially if you've gone through woodland areas. What is the treatment for Alabama rot, though? The spokesman said, due to the underlying cause of Alabama rot still being unknown, there is no specific treatment. 
If your dog is showing symptoms, it's vital that they are taken to the vets promptly so a plan can be decided and treatment can begin. Two acorns believed to have been planted by John Lennon and Yoko Ono in the grounds of Coventry Cathedral have gone on display at the Liverpool Beatles Museum. The acorns were seized from a drunk driver who claimed he had stolen them. The couple visited the cathedral in 1968 to create a living art sculpture with a wrought iron branch to surround where the two oak trees would grow. But the sculpture was reported to have caused upset with the cathedral canon and within a week the acorns had been stolen and Lennon removed the bench. More than 55 years after they were planted, the two acorns made their way to the museum on Liverpool's Matthew Street in an envelope sent by retired police officer Mike Davis. Mr Davis, a former traffic sergeant with Warwickshire Police, said they had been brought into Nuneaton Police Station by a man, aged about 19 or 20, who had been caught drink-driving outside Bedworth a few days after the cathedral planting. He said the driver and his girlfriend were Beatles fans, who had returned to the cathedral after the planting ceremony and stolen the acorns, coating them in clear nail varnish to preserve them. Because the acorns had no owner, and at the time no value, Mr Davis said he could not charge the couple with theft. They were in my desk until I retired in 1980, when I put them in a cardboard box, and that's where they have remained, until I decided to start clearing out my own personal things. When Mr Davis came across the acorns last year, it took him a moment to remember the story behind them. They were two seconds off going in the waste bin when I thought, that was John Lennon and Yoko Ono, he said. He searched Google for the details of the Beatles Museum and decided for the sake of a stamp to post the acorns there to see if they were of interest. And on Thursday the acorns went on display at the museum following an unveiling by Lennon's sister Julie Baird. Museum owner Roag Best, brother of the original Beatles drummer Pete Best, said John Lennon and Yoko Ono kicked off their whole peace movement with this art installation where the acorns were planted. Outlook News So thanks to my fellow newsreader Elaine now let's look at the daylight hours for this week. Sunrise is currently around 7.05am and sunset 5.35pm. Hugh has joined us in the studio now to bring you news from the Resource Centre. So welcome and over to you. Thank you very much. Okay, so uh, a few things to rattle through this week. Firstly, a huge, great, big thank you to Annette Ball. Uh, Annette, uh, as you may know, is... Uh, our music tutor, she's been leading the music group for many years now. Um, uh, she's also uh, one of the city's best 
piano teachers and she has a whole bunch of students and every year she gets them together and they do a concert um, and they did the concert this year at King Henry VIII School um, and Annette very kindly um, uh, all the ticket money raised uh, is uh, divided between two charities and uh, and we're one of them and so um, fantastically uh, last Saturday she raised uh, another £300 for us uh, from this event so just absolutely brilliant thank you so much Annette it's, I, I, went, I uh, didn't manage to go this time but I've been in previous years and, and it's absolutely stunning and it's so important for, for the students who go you know from the age of you know really quite young to really you know well into their uh, maturer years uh, you know I think last time I was there there was somebody who was like 79 or 80 uh, who was doing their very first piano concert it's such an important thing and it really helps boost people's confidence so thank you Annette we really appreciate it um uh, a little bit more news. Uh, we have a new trustee who has joined the board. I don't often talk about the trustees on this uh, on this program, uh, but <clears throat> Julian Ballinger, um, who uh, used to own with his brothers uh, Builders Supply, which was down in Sponend. Um, uh, they sold the business and retired happily. But uh, Julian, uh, I'm pleased to say, has come out of retirement a little bit, uh, and uh, he's joined the board of trustees. So we now have eight uh, members uh, of the board of trustees. Uh, some of you may have known that Suresh Manyal, and Suresh is really uh, quite famous in uh, in the. Uh, uh, I issue uh, community because he ran um, he he owned eyesight opticians which has got four or five uh, oh. places around the mm. around the city. Ken uh, uh, Suresh was our uh, chair, but he stepped down now, and I'm very pleased to say that Ken Taylor, um, who uh, was local councillor in Earlston for donkey's years uh, and a previous Lord Mayor uh, of uh, the city um, he is now uh, he's now stepped into the chair uh, as well so that's absolutely great news so we're very pleased to have Julian on board and welcome to Ken and good luck uh, in the chair you'll need it with me here <laughs> no that's fine so uh, I mentioned uh, previously uh, um, new outreach groups that we're doing uh, as part of the grant that we won last year we have been uh, developing uh, a number of activities here at the centre but uh, we also promised to set up some outreach groups which are in the further flung edges of the city that it might be for something you know, for people who don't need so much support as, as if they were coming into the centre all the time but you know a monthly contact group where they can get get you know, ask the questions that they need get a bit of help that they need uh, so th that's why we've done this so the first one starts next week so we've got four groups uh, one of them uh, so and the, so the first one is called CV3 VIPs so these are uh, I mean, anybody from any postcode can go to them but the uh, the, the location of the uh, of that outreach group will be the John White Community Centre which is in Binley so the CV3 VIPs they're going to meet on the first Tuesday of every month and as it happens that first first Tuesday of every month is next Tuesday um, so they meet from uh, 2pm till 4pm uh, uh, and then the next one after that is the CV6 VIPs uh, up in Holbrooks and that'll be at the Holbrooks Community Centre and they're going to meet on the first Wednesday of every month, uh, and that's uh, from 10 a.m. to 12 p.m., and they'll start meeting next Wednesday, which I think is about the 6th, uh, I think. Um, 
Then we've got uh, yet another group up in Belgrade. So these are the CV2 VIPs, uh, and that'll be at the Belgrade Community Centre. Now they're going to be on the second Tuesday of every month. So they'll, their first outing is on the 12th of uh, March, and that's a slightly odd time, but it's 1:15 till 3:15 p.m. Um, and then finally we've got the CV4 VIPs at the you know, meeting at the Canley Community Centre, and that's going to be on the third Wednesday of every month. Um, and uh, so that'll start uh, from the 20th of March. The little slight, it's a case of the availability of these spaces. <coughs> Why they're slightly, you know, slightly, uh, slightly odd times, but um, actually we think, you know, once they've settled in, they'll be absolutely fine. Now, uh, Kudi, our outreach officer, is going to be leading these groups, but uh, we think it would be really nice to have a, a, a volunteer or two uh, uh, who can help, you know, with at least making the teas or doing something like that. But we also think it would be really nice if we've got some people who, you know, who are regularly in contact with the centre and you happen to live near one of those, uh, one of those. Uh, centres, you know, whether you might po- uh, go in and sort of just support and help people um, uh, sort of get used to the idea and find out a bit more about the resource centre so that it's not laid down, all laid down on Kudi. So um, uh, if you're interested in that, do give Kudi a ring um, and let her know. Uh, you can call her on 024 7671 and I think she's option three um, but uh, just listen to my voice on the uh, when you phone up and uh, it'll tell you where how you can get hold of Kudi. we've <laughs> the walking group which meets on a wednesday morning is huge as they say in norfolk it's huge enormous uh, and uh, and it's popular i've still got people who are wanting to join it so at the moment the wednesday group is absolute the wednesday walking group is full full to bursting beyond full uh, so what we've decided to do is open another one and that is now going to be on Tuesday mornings. Now, we haven't actually fixed a, a time yet, uh, or, a, or time, uh, a date when that's going to start, but it will happen, and it will happen soon. I think we're looking at it starting at about 11 o'clock on a Tuesday morning. This is so that we can fit it in with buses and everything like that. Um, so be from, from 11 till 1-ish um, on, a, on a Tuesday. So... Uh, if you're, uh, we've already got some people um, who I'm going to put into that group, some new people who come to join us, you know, and you really like the idea of joining the walking group. We've got some volunteers as well. But if you, you know, if you like to do the do a walking group and you've not never been able to wake a Wednesday morning before, uh, uh, or that you just simply fancy giving it a go, it's really nice. You go for a walk around the park and stop at the cafe for a drink. It's not, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a really good, uh, really good. Uh, group and it just gets you out and about a bit of fresh air i tell you what the wednesday group has absolutely been blessed in the whole well we started it in august i think last year might have been july august and um we've only had to cancel it twice and one of those was last week mm. for, for bad weather you know and that throughout the whole winter so we're so so we'll hope that the uh, the, the the second walking group the tuesday walking group will uh attract uh equally good weather um now, Claire, as I told you uh, a couple of weeks ago, is now our community fundraising champion. Um, one of the early jobs that she's going to be doing is getting some more of our collecting tins out there into the community. And it would be nice to have them all over the city. So if anybody 
has got any uh, friendly pubs that they go to quite frequently, <laughs> I'm not going to judge, uh, or shops that they think might be busy, and, they, and anywhere that might accept one of these collecting tins, uh, we'd be really pleased to hear about it, and Claire will go and take one out to them. Uh, if you could give us a call on the centre number and go through to Claire, and I think she's option eight, um, then she can uh, she she'll take a note of it and we'll uh, uh, take those collection tins out there. So we'd be grateful for any suggestions along those lines. And finally, and absolutely most importantly. I'm going on holiday on Saturday, <laughs> and <laughs> I'm going to Portugal for a week, so uh, I will not be available uh, in any way, uh, so uh, Jo will basically be looking after the shop, and I think she'll be here next week to tell you everything that's going on in my absence. Uh, so, thank you, dear friends. I will be back with you in a couple of weeks' time. Thanks very much. Yeah. Now, it's normally time for sport. But unfortunately, Sarah's unable to do a sports report this week as she's still having difficulty with her vision. She really hopes to be back next time. So instead, here's Nigel with a little quiz to get you thinking. So I thought, uh, instead of sport, we'd have a simple little quiz. Uh, no prizes, just something to keep your mind alert and have a bit of fun. So here we are, number, number one question. Cowries are used as currency by some... Pacific Islands. What are they? What are cowries? Number two. Scuba diving, which we all heard about, of course. Uh, what do the letters scuba, S-C-U-B-A, mean? Number three. What are the Christian names of Torville and Dean, who are just about to give up their world touring, I believe? Number four, if the sun exploded, how long before we on earth realise it had happened? Number five, which country did Paddington Bear come from? Number six, what fruit was formerly called the Chinese gooseberry? Number seven, in Greek mythology, what was the nation of women soldiers known as? Number eight, what animal was depicted on the last farthing coin issued? Number nine, what are the Christian names of the three Bronte sisters? And finally, number 10, in which year was John Lennon shot? So there you are, 10 questions, answers next week. No prizes, have a bit of fun seeing find out all the answers. Many thanks, Nigel. And now we're going over to Dave for this week's postbag. This is Postbag. Discussion. Hello there. I hope you've been keeping warm. We begin with Edwina telling you about an item of warm clothing. Hi everybody. Hmm. I've got to talk about the weather. <laughs> Sorry. One of my friends has told me to 
twice spaced out that there's going to be snow in March. So I thought, right, I'll give you the latest tip to keep warm, especially the men. So, hi, the men, put your ears. A lot of men are doing outside jobs in this intense cold and wet weather. The, the object I'm talking about is a jacket, an insulated jacket. The jacket is very, very lightweight and you put it under your jacket or coat and it keeps you really, really warm. I bought my son-in-law one of those insulated jackets for Christmas and he's absolutely over the moon about it. He's warm and cosy while he's working. He works outside with scaffolding and building houses and works at the NEC and he goes abroad. One year he went abroad with his team of 16 men to Arabia and they were working in 45 degrees. How about that then? But back to the jacket. It really is worth buying. And there's the sizes you need. If you are one of those large men, six foot plus, you have to say a very big man to get onto that particular size. I had to get size 60 for my son-in-law. It's absolutely wonderful, he said. So he's very cosy while he's working in the intense cold. And there are smaller ones neater for the ladies too. Keep smiling, everybody. Bye. And now Julia has this report about an activity to keep you warm, partying. Happy birthday, Gateway friends. That's a funny thing. They all had their 51st birthdays on the same day. What's the chances of that happening, eh? Good old Wendy the Warden had her usual chocolate fudge cake, and guess what? She had my piece too. No wonder she's so fat. She could have had black forest gateau, or strawberry cream cakes. Perhaps she did when I wasn't looking. Then the music came on and the orgy began. Later there was a magician called Robert Sweet who did lots of card tricks and made boxes with money in them disappear. He asked if there was any requests and I said yes. Can you make my friend John disappear? But I hadn't invited him so he couldn't make him disappear. Ah oh well, some of you win, some of you lose. When it comes to my friend John, I lose every time. We didn't win the raffle, but we sang happy birthday to the Gateway Club. And of course, that started the rain and we all got soaked. Lots of love, everybody. Julia. Thank you, Julia. A friend of yours called Joanna goes to the bereavement group I go to at Alsley Church. She said that the Gateway Club asked if one of the male dancers from the solo club upstairs would like to come down and dance with them. 
Unfortunately, no one did. I would have come down if I'd been there, but I went to see the Wizard of Oz at Allsley Village Hall with two friends, John and Barbara. Your friend Wendy the Warden, who I play table tennis with, also came to the nostalgic singing group and got up dancing with a friend Sally. The people there sing a wide range of songs, from I Like a Nice Cup of Tea in the Morning to Dancing Queen by Abba. Graham has these comments to make about when the generation gap started to largely disappear in relation to music. Well, the further to my piece about the generation gap, the musical generation gap, uh, first of all, let me just correct the band which I first joined when I came back to Coventry in the 1960s was called Jarrett and the Three Spires, not the Spires as Dave referred to them. But that's not important. Um, Dave went on to say about uh, his son mentioning that uh, young people like old music and so forth. I would say that musically the generation gap petered out from about the late 80s onwards. Um, from the late 80s onwards you found that things improved, that um, people started, young people started to appreciate old people's music and old people tend to appreciate young people's music. Yes, there's still one or two diehards around with their heads in the clouds, musical snobs, I call them. But generally speaking, things are a lot better than they were in those early days. I mean, I would never dream of listening, or would never have dreamt listening to people like Frank Sinatra and Ella Fitzgerald in the 1960s. But I can listen to Frank Sinatra, Ella Fitzgerald, um, Mel Torme, um, you name them quite comfortably these days. In fact, I'm very much into jazz, particularly jazz piano. So, uh, yeah, things have certainly changed since um, those particular days. Doreen Hilton, who, like Graham, enjoys music, tells you when she used to dance the can-can. Um, hello, everybody. Here's Doreen here again. As you know, uh, Doreen, she likes um, music, dancing. Music is beautiful. But many, many years ago, when I was younger, um, I did the can-can. I can't do it now. I only wished I could. In them days, in the 60s, when we had the can-can, they used to wear the old miniskirts and also the shorts. And um, it was really lovely, you know, to do that sort of dance. Um, I can't really say a lot about it, you know, excepting it was a bit of exercise and a bit of dancing, lovely music to dance to. Dance to. I do like the can-can, and I wish I could do it again. <laughs> Where do you do the can-can? Done the can-can in the Hen Lane Club every Saturday night. Um, we had a concert, and we didn't do it every Saturday night. We, we done it every now and again. And it weren't just me. It was, I think I got them all going on it, though. And we really loved it, the whole issue of us. We was, um, some of us was drunk and some of us weren't drunk, but I don't think I was drunk because I don't think I'd have done it. So we really loved it. Okay, all? Bye. 
And here's someone else who loves music. You may remember I once introduced you to a blind pianist and singer called Alison Twelfer. She is very chatty and does a morning song on Facebook, one of which I recorded with her permission when she talked about going to the pictures to see Elvis with the help of audio description, something I've been trying to persuade you to try for years. You ask for the headsets at the cinema, which enable you to hear a description of the action in the film that you may not be able to see. Audio description is available on all screens at the Odeon and certain screens at Showcase. Just recently, Alison gave a live show on Facebook with her daughter Karen, joining in singing and reading out the comments sent in, including mine, where I asked her to say hello to you. Alison's voice has been likened to her favourite singer, Karen Carpenter, which may explain her daughter's name. Here's Alison Twelfer with Karen. So are you ready? One, two, three, four. Oh yes, wait a minute, Mr. Postman. Wait, Mr. Postman. Listen to Alison Twelfer. Ask for Alison Twelfer music on the media you use. That's Alison Twelfer, T R Elf, as in Santa's Elf, A. Thank you for your messages this week. That was a cheery post bag, wasn't it? Okay, please let's hear from you next week. Bye for now. This is Outlook. You can contact Postbag. Our website is www.talkingnewspaper.org.uk. Our email address is postbag at talkingnewspaper.org.uk. Join in the discussion on Postbag. As always, thanks to Dave for bringing us your Postbag. Elaine has been looking at some links with the month of February, so before it slips away from us, here is part one of a two-part feature. A few short pieces that are loosely linked, starting with February, which this year is a leap year. If you know how we get the extra day, you could be called a smart aleck. Loose link number one is where that saying came from. A smart aleck 
is someone who is all too keen to show off their knowledge of a subject. Your average smart aleck knows too much and will take every opportunity to remind us of this. The term refers to a historical smart aleck, one Alex Hoag. Hoag lived in New York in the 1840s and was a notoriously clever and successful thief. Along with his wife Miranda, who was a prostitute, an accomplice named French Jack, and two corrupt policemen, Mr. Hoag conducted many a petty theft using his beautiful wife to distract his unsuspecting victims while he picked their pockets and handed the loot to French Jack. The police officers were paid to turn a blind eye. A further scam took place whenever Miranda was plying her trade. Her visiting customers, clothes removed, would lie waiting for her. When ready, Miranda would draw a curtain around the bed, and once things were in full flow, Hoag would enter the room and remove anything of value from the victim's pockets. Then, having quietly left the room, he would turn and knock loudly on the door, pretending to be an angry husband. This, of course, would result in the customer exiting via the window, not noticing what was missing. Eventually, Alec Hoag was caught, trying to avoid paying off his police officers, and was sentenced to jail. The story goes that the nickname Smart Alec was given to him by the police. After all, they had to acknowledge that, although he was an irritant, he had been pretty clever in what he had done. In this sense, the phrase stuck. If you aren't a smart Alec, here is a simple explanation for a leap year. We get an extra day because a year isn't an exact year. It is 365 days and 6 hours. So every fourth year it has accumulated to a day, which is the 29th of February. It was the Roman king Numa who added January and February to the calendar to make 12 months to match the 12 lunar cycles. And he chose February to have the bonus day. That is a simple explanation. Anne Hodgkin was a leap year baby. She wrote a lament of a leap year birthday. To me, it's not a lament, just a leap year poem. Sometime when February met March in the middle of the night, I nearly had a birthday. Yes, nearly, but not quite. I had cards and gifts on Wednesday and some on Thursday too. No one's ever very sure just when my birthday's due. This two-day celebration, it really suits me fine. Because the three years out of every four, there is no date that's mine. I wonder just what Russell Grant would make of my strange fate. I've never known him feature someone born upon my date. I didn't have a proper birthday till I was four years old, but there are some compensations as my later years unfold. As my peers approach their twilight years, and with old age are cursed, I'll remind them that they'll be 84 
when I reach my twenty-first. Maybe you're a leap year baby. If so, that poem was just for you. Also often in February is loose link number two, which is Lent. This year it starts on February the 14th, with Shrove Tuesday being the 13th. Lent comes from the old English word lengthen, which refers to the lengthening of the days and the coming of spring. In medieval Britain, this 40-day time of fasting in preparation for Easter was strictly adhered to, as much out of practical necessity as religious duty. Food stocks were running low, meat was scarce, and it was a long wait until harvest. Henry VIII and the Puritans enforced fasting quite strictly. During Lent, no meat, cream or butter or eggs were eaten, so pancakes were made to use up what was still in. Shrove Tuesday has become the day for a last fling. The word carnival means goodbye meat, and Mardi Gras means Fat Tuesday. The Mardi Gras carnival in New Orleans is world famous. In Germany and other European countries, Monday and Tuesday are carnival days. There's not so much fasting these days. People give up something for Lent, or do some extra religious reading, or do an extra bit of service to others or to the church. But after enjoying pancakes, we should have an activity. Smart Alec, that was a loose link in more senses than one. I hope you were listening after the 9pm watershed. <laughs> Regarding Leap Day, my neighbour's son was born on February the 28th, 2012, just in the last hour before the 29th. His parents were very relieved. So he's 12 today instead of having a third actual birthday on the 29th. Still, the poet Elaine quoted seemed quite happy with her Leap Birthdays. Next, Nigel reads a piece about a famous artwork known as the Bayeux Tapestry because it's housed in the French town of Bayeux. It dates from the 11th century and depicts the Norman conquest of England after the Battle of Hastings in 1066. Nestled in the quiet town of Bayeux in Normandy lies a masterpiece that has captivated the minds of historians art enthusiasts and curious minds for centuries. The Bayeux Tapestry, a remarkable piece of embroidered artwork, isn't just a visual marvel, it's a remarkable historical document that unfolds the story of one of the most pivotal moments in European history, the Norman Conquest of England in 1066. With its intricate details, vivid storytelling and enduring legacy, the Bayer Tapestry continues to be a captivating window into the past. Measuring approximately 230 feet in length and just over 20 inches in height, the Bayer Tapestry is no ordinary artwork. Commissioned in the late 11th century, it is not a true tapestry, but rather an embroidery. Crafted with woolen threads on a linen background, the tapestry consists of a series of scenes that depict the events leading up to and following the Battle of Hastings in 1066. 
This decisive conflict marked the end of Anglo-Saxon rule in England and the beginning of the Norman domination. The Bayer Tapestry is often hailed as a masterpiece of medieval art, not just for its historical significance, but also for its exceptional craftsmanship. Through its intricate stitches and meticulous detailing, the tapestry offers a visual narrative that transports viewers back in time. The scenes unfold like chapters in a storybook, portraying the journey of Harold Godwinson and the last Anglo-Saxon King of England and William the Conqueror, the Duke of Normandy. From the depiction of King Edward's deathbed oath to Harold's fateful encounter with an arrow through the eye at the Battle of Hastings, each scene is an amalgamation of political drama, personal tragedy and military strategy. The vibrant colours, carefully chosen threads and emotive expressions on the faces of the characters all contribute to the tapestry's emotional resonance. Interpreting the Bayer tapestry is a fascinating endeavour. While the tapestry represents a coherent narrative, it also leaves room for speculation and interpretation. The anonymity of the tapestry's creators, who likely hailed from the various regions of medieval Europe, adds an air of mystery to its origins and intentions. The tapestry is an intriguing blend of medieval art styles merging Anglo-Saxon and Norman influences. This unique fusion reflects the historical context of the conquest itself, as well as the complexity of cultural exchange during this period. The Battle of Hastings, fought on October 14, 1066, was a pivotal event in English history. Duke William of Normandy challenged King Edward II for the English throne. After a long day of combat, William's, William's Norman forces defeated the English. Harold was killed, possibly by an arrow to the eye. The victory ensured William's ascendancy as King William I of England, marking the beginning of Norman rule. This change in rulership initiated a profound transformation in English society. The Normans introduced feudalism, reshaped the landscape with castles and churches, and interwove Norman French with Old English, creating the foundation for Middle English. This battle marked the end of Anglo-Saxon rule and set England on a new historical path. The Bayer Tapestry has woven itself into the fabric of popular culture and education. Reproductions and adaptations of the tapestry can be found in museums, history books and even digital platforms. It has inspired artists, authors and filmmakers to explore the events of 1066 in new and creative way, ways, keeping the memory of the Norman Conquest alive for modern audiences. I recently watched a BBC programme about the Bayer Tapestry, and as an embroiderer I found it really fascinating. The same range of coloured wools are used throughout, and it's remarkable how it survived all these centuries. Back home now, Keith is reading from the Earlsdon Echo, about the decline of Earlsdon Street. This is Keith Bushnell reading an article from the December-January issue of Echo Community Newspaper entitled, Is the Loss of Our Local High Street Now Inevitable? The recent sudden closure of Joe Richards, the long-running and well-loved fruit and vegetable shop on Earlsdon Street, could be the final nail in the coffin, many fear. 
the local high street. Over the last few years, there has been a steady decline in the variety of shops this street and the local area has to offer. Not so long ago, there was a butcher's, a deli, shops where you could buy cards, jewellery, mattresses, toys and assorted gifts. Now there seems to be increasingly fewer shops where you can buy new physical objects rather than having your hair cut, having your eyes tested or buying a hot drink. The consequence is that the high street can no longer cater for many of the items that may feature on someone's shopping list so they are more likely to turn away and go elsewhere where they can buy everything they need. People would still make visits to Joe Richards to top up on fresh fruit or buy that missing dinner ingredient and perhaps pop into another local shop at the same time. Many people said they visited multiple times a week, but now this regular draw is gone, what is left to lure people to the area. We still have a chemist, now an independent one, so we can hope that people will pop into other local shops when they pass by to pick up their prescriptions. But sadly, they have a rapidly decreasing choice of other shops to pop into. So what has caused this decline? Some blame it on parking or lack of it. Even the introduction of residence parking schemes in nearby streets over the last few years. The fact remains, though, that these schemes don't affect Earlston Street itself, or Albany Road, or other streets nearby, and there are small local car parks that can be used. Moreover, one of the celebrated things about Joe Richards is that it was a local shop within walking distance of many local homes, even if you might have needed the aid of a shopping trolley if you got a bit carried away purchasing pounds of potatoes or a heavy watermelon. Others blame the loss of the banks, and indeed a Joe Richard spokesperson commented that the decline in football, footfall appears to correlate with the closure of the banks. Over the last few years we have lost NatWest, followed by Lloyd's and then Coventry Building Society, and the first two of these premises still remain disappointingly empty. In theory you can still do some banking at the post office, it is an undeniable fact, however, that Charles Moore still has its banks and is still retaining its sister shop of our beloved Earlston branch of Joe Richards, with business there seemingly still going okay. The Kenworth branch also remains. Another theory for the loss of shops from Earlston Street is that the rents are too high. If this is the case, eventually landlords might realise that. If the level of rent is putting off tenants, lower rent is better than no rent at all, if they are unable to find a tenant who can stretch to the high price. Alternatively, businesses could explore options of moving into quieter, possibly cheaper premises in side streets, although footfall would probably be even lower there. It is important to remember that we can support small businesses that may not necessarily be on the high street, but can be accessed locally, such as Cogs of Coventry. The plant fairy and other ones that may have pop-up stores occasionally. Has the time yet come to follow the model of the library and set up our own volunteer-run community shop featuring all the things we want to buy locally but can't? 
Surely this should be one of the things livable neighbourhoods should be exploring rather than almost exclusively looking at traffic. Joe Richards had the advantage of being local, convenient, healthy, eco-friendly in that it enabled fruit and veg to be bought with no or minimal plastic packaging and generally good value for money, particularly for fruit in season and mince pies at Christmas. All this will be missed and we wish the staff well. Our front cover with its message of supporting local shops and businesses was planned a year in advance, but couldn't be more relevant now since this latest lamented closure. Ultimately, the simple reason for the closure of this shop and others in the area is that not enough people went in and bought stuff. It does really boil down to the old adage, use them or lose them. We still have the co-op and convenience stores and other places you could search for Christmas gifts. Mooch, down to earth where you can purchase gifts such as chocolate or toiletries, as well as organic fruit, veg and food and other eco-friendly items. Cobblers, which sells tankards and and occasion gifts. Beer and wine shops. Universal discount stores, which sell some toys and household goods food, stationery and books by local authors in the post office, not forgetting the charity shops which often have some new goods on offer as well as second-hand eco-friendly bargains. Please buy local where you can all year round and you might just inject them with enough magic sparkle to keep them open. Some ideas there about how to regenerate Ilsden's main street. And now part one of a piece written by Claire Wordsworth, producer and friend of the great entertainer Barry Humphreys. Barry died in April 2023, and Bill is the reader of Farewell Possum. I had the pleasure of working with the multi-talented Barry Humphreys on BBC Radio for seven years. We were putting together a seventh series of his popular Radio 2 show, Barry's forgotten musical masterpieces, featuring his personal selection of vintage music, celebrating artists from the 1920s to the 1940s, when he died in April, aged 89. Instead, I've been involved in a special show, Radio 2 Remembers Barry Humphreys, presented by Steve Wright and broadcast this evening, still available on BBC Sounds, look back at this remarkable entertainer's life and career. It had been hoped that Dane Edna would be available to present the programme in honour of her manager, Barry Humphreys. Her fee is now quite beyond the budget. Barry once told me she's living out her retirement in Mexico, of all places. Edna often grumbled about Barry and accused him of embezzling her money more than once. Yet, until his death earlier this year, he remained indelibly linked. During Covid, Harry recorded his radio programmes at his home in North London. He'd sit at a desk under a duvet, suspended between two clothes horses, because soft surfaces are better for acoustics. It was usually the sound of distant drilling to contend with, our listeners were either very forgiving or didn't notice, because Barry was so entertaining 
and the music was just so gripping. His radio shows took him right back to his childhood in Melbourne. Harry said his best friend, when he was growing up, was the wireless. It lit up his imagination and provided a gateway to exciting worlds of entertainment far away. When I sit in front of a BBC microphone, I'm instantly transported back to my childhood, when I first heard the wonderful music and funny voices coming out of my parents' radio. I consider the wireless to be the world's greatest invention, Harry said during one of his Radio 2 broadcasts. Listening to the radio is how Barry first discovered that some people earned a living as professional entertainers. Around 40 years later, I'm younger than Barry, radio became my best friend too. Our backgrounds were very different. I grew up in England rather than Australia, a stone's throw from the M6 motorway in not-so-sunny West Midlands. We shared across the generations a love of witty, melodic songs by the likes of Noel Coward, Paul Porter and George Gershwin. Harry grew up looking back at past performers, and so did I. While my friends were dreaming of attending Radio 1 roadshows, I wanted to meet David Jacobs and the performers featured on his Radio 2 show. Many years later, I was lucky enough to work with David, and that's how I found out Harry Humphreys, the man behind Dame Edna, loved old music too. As a broadcast assistant, each week after David finished recording his show, it was my job to file his CDs away. And this would always take me longer than it should, because I'd get distracted by the information on the sleeve notes and the inlay cards. One such CD was an album of old songs. Al Bowley, Hildegard and the Comedian Harmonists, compiled by Barry himself. Ten years later, in 2013, Barry's forgotten musical masterpieces was commissioned. It would take three years before the first programmes made it to air, as Barry was always so busy with shows at the London Palladium and his role as Goblin King in the movie The Hobbit, An Unexpected Journey, directed by Peter Jackson. The first series for Radio 2 was put together in Staffordshire while I was looking after my dad after he'd had a hip operation. Occasionally, I'd get a call from Barry to discuss the music we were planning to feature. It was always a surreal pleasure to hear from him when working on my laptop in a corner of a local working men's club while my dad sat in his wheelchair playing cards or dominoes with his mate in a kind of alternative last of the summer wine universe. Barry's brain was full of countless amazing things not least his encyclopedic knowledge of music. I suddenly felt I'd become the luckiest person alive as he began to share his musical treasure with me over the phone. Songs from Cole Porter, Noel Coward, were a world away from my reality at that time. Yet music had always been about escapism for me. My parents divorced when I was young, and Radio 2 became my best friend. It was my station, 
in the same way someone else might describe their football team. More about Barry and possibly even Dame Edna next time. Here's Margaret now with more definitions from Dictionary Corner, Susie Dent's column in the Radio Times. On cloud nine. There are various expressions involving numerical degrees of happiness. We can be in seventh heaven, which refers to the most exalted of the heavens in Islamic doctrine. We can also occupy cloud nine, which some believe derives from the nine classes of angels in Christian cosmology, in which the seraphim, the highest class, are closest to God. Another theory involves an 1896 meteorological guide, the International Cloud Atlas, in which the ninth classification was the lofty and fluffy cumulonimbus. But the expression was popularised by a 1950s US radio show in which a fictional insurance investigator called Johnny Dollar was involved in various exploits. Every time he was knocked unconscious, he was taken to Cloud Nine to recover. Scrupulous. For the Romans, a scrupulous was a sharp pebble. This gave rise to the use of the word scruple to mean a cause of anxiety as though a person afflicted by worry is walking with a sharp pebble in their shoe, one that would cause them to walk extremely carefully or scrupulously. Soon after, a scruple also became a unit of weight equivalent to 20 grains or one twenty-fourth of an ounce, as used by apothecaries. In fact, over its lifetime, the word has been variously a Roman measure of 10 feet square, a minute, a one-twelfth of an inch. Each of these small measurements look back to the idea of a tiny pebble. A similar story it lies behind the word calculate, which comes from the Latin calculus, a small pebble that was once used on an abacus. Show a leg. Seasoned lexicographers will sometimes jokingly talk of canoe, the committee to ascribe a nautical origin to everything. As it turns out, we will never need such a committee since our language is already awash with words and phrases that were born on the waves. Show a leg is one of them, used to rouse someone in action. It's first recorded as being in Navy use at the beginning of the 19th century as part of a formula used to call hands from their hammocks. Wakey, wakey, rise and shine, the morning's fine. Show a leg, show a leg, show a leg. Some take the story further, referring to the days when women were allowed to sleep on board. Come morning, they would stick out a leg to reveal their identity and ensure no male sailor was still turned in. 
Susie Dent has been explaining the origins of English words and phrases for many years on Channel 4's Countdown. Next, hurdy-gurdy days, the last chapter of this portrait of life in Coventry at the beginning of the 20th century. It's read by Alan. We were too young to know just what ma'am had on her mind, but we could see that she was worried over something and knew she was determined to get us out of that court and that street somehow. She had heard there was a new estate about to be built in the fields around London Road at the back of the old charter house, the medieval building founded by King Richard II for the Carthusian monks nearly 600 years ago. It stood in its own ground, surrounded by a high wall. Ma'am wasn't quite sure how to go about it. She knew the rent would be higher, as it would be a new house, straight onto the pavement, not up a court like ours. She had no one to turn to for help. Our dad was not in agreement. They were always quarrelling about it. Nor was our gran. They had lived in the court all their lives and didn't want to go far away from the greyhound. Ma'am didn't want to keep going to the pawn shop as the articles pawned had to be redeemed somehow. This was a constant worry to our ma'am, and thousands like her. Old Samuels charged a half-penny interest a month, and if at the end of twelve months the articles were not redeemed, they were lost forever, and he sold them for much more than he had paid for them. One afternoon, ma'am suddenly made up her mind to go and see the builder. It took a lot of courage, but ma'am was a fighter. Nothing daunted her proud spirit. She had much perseverance. She dressed up in her best clothes and looked quite smart. She was quite pretty with her dark hair and china-blue eyes. She had on a black hat trimmed with feathers and a tight-fitted jacket and a skirt with three or four frills at the bottom, edged with black satin baby ribbon. The jacket and skirt she had bought from a second-hand clothes shop, and it had been altered to fit her. It was very full, with yards of material in it. The fullness of the skirt was gathered together at the back, in a sort of bunch, held with a skirt clasp, which opened and shut with a kind of spring. The skirt was very long, and the clip kept it off the ground, out of the dirt, and also made it easier to walk but it was sometimes necessary to hold it up with one hand when going up steps. Crinolines had only just gone out of fashion, and this was a new idea. Round the waist she wore a belt, made of metal medallions, all joined together with two large clasps at the front to fasten it. When she arrived at the building site, where the builder had his office, man was overcome with nervousness, and walked about for five minutes afraid to go in, and then she turned round and boldly knocked at the door. A gruff voice says, Come in. She entered timidly and was confronted by a rough-looking man with a cloth cap on his head, who didn't look at all like the builder she had imagined. Good afternoon, she said. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, said the man without looking up. And what can I do for you, he said, suddenly turning his head and looking up and down. "'Are you Mr. Forrester, the builder?' she asked in a tremulous voice. "'Yes, ma'am, I am.' "'Well, I came to see you if I could have my name put down for one of your houses when they are finished,' said ma'am. Still staring at her, he asked abruptly, "'Can you pay the rent? It will be five and nine a week.' "'Yes, I think so,' said ma'am. 
Do you think so? You've got to be sure. Where do you live now? Man went very red, and with downcast eyes told him our address. He looked her up and down again, and said in his gruff voice, You've got pluck, woman. The houses will be sold for one hundred and eighty pounds when they are finished, and if any are sold for investment, I will put your name forward as a tenant, but the landlord will, of course, require a week's rent in advance. I will let you know when they are ready. Good afternoon. Poor ma'am. This was a blow. How on earth was she going to be able to pay five and ninepence a week and three and sixpence all in one week? She didn't understand what he meant by investment. Existence was the only word she understood. At last she succeeded in overcoming overwhelming obstacles, and we did move into our new house, and that was the beginning of our changed world. But that is another story. Goodbye to Hurdy Gurdy Days, a book written by Lynn Dorothy Hockton and Beatrice Mary Callow. And now to our last item, Dave has been visiting a little-known venue housed in Coventry Cathedral Ruins. Hello there. Welcome to the Coventry Cathedral Ruins. I'm at the front, not far from the Father Forgive inscription and the charred cross. To the right hand side this Coventry's best kept secret. That's a little museum, a Blitz museum, which we're going to go in hopefully. Hello. Uh, can I have a little visit round please? Yeah, of course you can. Uh, okay, what's, yeah. what's the, the museum about please? Um, the museum is about uh, the Coventry Blitz and, yeah. and obviously what happened to the cathedral where you're standing yes, at yes. the moment. Yeah. Um, Fantastic. Yeah, okay. So, and, uh, so when's it open normally? It um, it's normally open weekends, um, yeah. Saturday and Sunday, uh, eleven to three on a Saturday, and I think it's twelve to three on a Sunday. Okay. And then in the summer holidays, it will open a little bit more. Good. Look um, forward to coming around. Thank you. Yeah. Come inside. Bye. Take a look around. Yeah. Thank you. We're going down the steps now. The last steps. Where are we going now? Uh, I'm in the room where there's some school desks. Yeah, you're right. Hello there. I'm speaking to Adam at the moment. We're down below the ruins of Coventry Cathedral and we're in a kind of schoolroom. What's the schoolroom? This is the former vestry of Coventry yeah. Cathedral, yeah. running right underneath where the altar is at yeah. the end of the ruins yeah. now. It's been converted into um, Blitz Museum. Yeah. Um, it's used as a school's educational facility, so it's only open to the public in uh, school holidays and weekends. Uh, we've got a team of volunteers which uh, uh, show the public around what's going on in the, in the museum. Hopefully people learn about the futility of war. And it's a reminder of the awful thing that happened to Coventry during their 1940 blitz. 1940s, wartime, and later there's the, a, a treadle operated Singer sewing machine here, and we have a tin here for household jobs such as darning socks. I could do with one of those things now, it's made of wood, like a mushroom, okay, for darning socks. There's a household repair outfit, like uh, curved upholstery needles and packing needle and carpet needle. By June 1941 it became necessary to ration clothing 
everyone was given 66 points a year, later reduced to 48, and you could choose what to use them on. This basic rate of coupons was intended to cover one complete outfit a year. And there's a poster on the wall showing a pig. And it says, we want your kitchen waste for pig food. I then walked into a recreation of a 1940s kitchen come dining room where they did everything. Lady Guide describes that room. Uh, we have a Welsh dresser full oh, of yeah. um, crockery from That's the time. Nice. We have uh, all the washing facilities with a dolly tub from Mangle yeah. and a huge grocery cupboard. And that's all in this, oh, and table and chairs they would have had in this area as well. Yes. Yes. Okay, excellent. Uh, we have um, copies of ration books, yes. identity cards, and drawers with the uh, rationed allowances for an yes. adult for a week yes. in here. And this is the warden's post-exhibits room. And there's a map of Europe there with Britain in red. Well, and there's uh, an old typewriter here on a desk, and uh, an old phone. There's various uniforms here. There's a Royal Air Force jacket, army a battle dress, army dress uniform. And there's some uh, various toys here. There's a John Bull printing outfit, which I used to have. There's a map game, motor chase across London, and there's a pop-up book, of Alibaba and the 40 Thieves. And we're in a recreation of an air raid shelter now. There's the Union Jack hanging up and there's a lady in sort of ARP dress. And there's a young lad here. He, he is pushing a pram full of suitcases. He's presumably an evacuee. And there's a sign that says, Dig for Victory. And you can hear from the video, the air raid siren. Hello there. All right, right, I'm speaking to a gentleman. What's your name? Uh, my name's Trevor Kirby. Okay, okay. What do you think of the music? I think it's very, very good, very interesting, and very educational for the children to look at, to see what we've all been through at certain ages. Okay, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Right, can you tell me about the International uh, Cross of Nails organisation? Yeah, we, it started right back from the war years when yeah. it was decided that friendliness was better than fighting. Yes, yeah, sure. And we started off with just an odd one or two groups, yeah. and now we've uh, 250 centres now throughout the world. There is a code of conduct, and they have to fulfil those Yes. needs before yes. they can actually join yes. and it's everybody getting on with one another we did actually start a school in um, Ireland for yeah. Protestant and Catholic children to go together Excellent. and that's yeah. the sort of thing that Cross of Nails does Fantastic work. Thank you very much. Pleasure. What's your name? Jill. Jill. Yeah. Nice to meet you. And really. you as well. It's a fascinating museum. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. Bye-bye. Thank you. Oh, we're just uh, about to leave the Blitz Museum. Okay, Coventry's hidden gem and best kept secret, no doubt. Okay, so that's all from the Blitz Museum 
in the old Coventry Cathedral ruins. Hope you found it interesting. Bye for now. Just to clarify something about the cross of nails mentioned in Dave's piece. The original cross was formed from three medieval nails found on the floor of the cathedral after the roof collapsed on the night of the Blitz. It's now known as a symbol of hope and friendship in the aftermath of conflicts around the world. That's the last item on this week's programme. So it's goodbye from me, Stella Roberts, and all the Outlook team, until next week.